Blog Talk Radio. everybody and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host Ted Odorico. We've got a great show for you tonight. This is July 6th of 2017. We've got a very special guest going to be joining me here in just a moment but uh, let me first remind everybody of course we are live every Thursdays from normally from 6 to 8 p.m. central or 7 to 9 for those of you on the east coast uh, but we're gonna have a little bit shorter show. Of course we're not going to have Coach's Corner again this week. Uh, gave uh, everybody a break just because of the holiday and uh, wanted to uh, a lot of folks were, were going away for an extended holiday this uh, past uh, week so uh, I decided to give uh, the folks a a little bit of an extra break. Um, Next week of course I'm going on a holiday so I'm not going to be able to do the show so that'll be for July 13th. I will not have a show next week uh, but we'll be returning uh, on July 20th with uh, a Coach's Corner segment again and then also uh, uh, an interview with my my special guest of that evening. So um, lots of things happening, lots of changes happening in the show and uh, just taking a little bit of a break here uh, through the summer months and enjoying some of the finally some great weather that we've had here uh, down in Florida. But anyways, uh, glad you could tune in tonight on the broadcast. And just let me remind everybody, uh, best way to find us, go to blogtalkradio.com. Uh, up in the search key, just type Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the main page. And during the live broadcast, as I said, from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, uh, you'll find us front and center. Uh, but for those of you that maybe uh, aren't able to join in uh, for the live broadcast, not to worry. Just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Golf Talk Live and just scroll down to the on-demand section. And that's where all of the uh, previously uh, recorded and aired segments will be. And you can just scroll down and listen to maybe some of the shows that you might have missed, including tonight's show. So uh, feel free to, to check that as well. Uh, and for those of you that maybe are, like to use uh, iTunes or Stitcher.com, uh, go to either of those platforms and just, again, type in Golf Talk Live. And you can listen to them in their podcast, for, podcast excuse me, version there as well. Uh, always love to hear from you. If you want to call in any time during the live broadcast, you can do so. Uh, on Thursday nights, and that uh, number to call is area code 646-716-4667. Uh, or you can email questions or comments to me personally at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. Uh, also on facebook.com, uh, Golf Talk Live blog is the uh, direct link, uh, forward slash Golf Talk Live blog, excuse me. Uh, you can get updates for the show, who's going to be on, and uh, some of the upcoming guests and that. And then you can also, uh, I post it on Twitter and LinkedIn as well, so you can go to my Twitter handle is Ted and Buck. CEO, and of course, my uh, LinkedIn page, of course, is just my name, Ted J. Odorico. Um, but glad you could join us tonight for those of you tuning in for the live broadcast. Uh, my very special guest tonight is Michael Vaughn. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about him and then we'll bring him on, uh, get him to join the conversation. Uh, he's a former mini tour player uh, back in 2008 to 2014. His current position is a sales manager for the PGA Tour and the 2017 President's Cup, which of course is being held at Liberty National Golf Club. Uh, this fall in New Jersey City, uh, New Jersey. Uh, the dates are September 26th to October 1st. We're going to talk a little bit about that uh, towards the end of the show. Um, and Michael, of course, is still a, an average player to this day. 
but now utilizes some of what he learned as a golf professional and applying it to his everyday business life. So let me bring him out and we'll uh, get into some uh, great uh, discussion tonight here uh, on Golf Talk Live. Michael, welcome to the show. Ted, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Not a problem. Um, Michael, I think first and foremost, uh, I've sort of laid, the, I guess, the groundwork, if you will, of, of what you do and, and what your position is with the PGA Tour. But why don't you just share with the, the listeners tonight just a little bit about what some of your functions are there, and then we'll get into some uh, a little more in-depth uh, discussion about what life was like for you out on the, on the uh, mini tour circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my role right now, uh, as you mentioned, is a sales manager with the tour, uh, and I'm specifically focused on uh, the President's Cup. So my job is to fill all the corporate hospitality uh, and sponsorships for the President's Cup this fall. Uh, basically, all those, when you go to a PGA Tour event, you see all those uh, corporate tents and all those tents that everyone's going in and out of uh, on course. Uh, it's my job to, to fill those with, with companies and individuals uh, basically, my focus is on, on those who have a need to entertain. Um, so companies that are looking to grow their business relationships and that type of thing, I'm looking to uh, get in touch with those companies and find a fit for them uh, with our event and our hospitality. Right. And there's different levels of, of corporate sponsorship, correct? Correct. Yeah, we've got uh, basically everything from single-day hospitality tickets uh, from kind of a basic level, kind of an upgraded grounds pass, all the way up to private you know, chalets and um, private suites for the entire week uh, in a very wide range of price point. I mean, our stuff ranges from, you know, a couple hundred bucks per ticket all the way up to, you know, the private suites go for, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a week. So I um, mean, even, even more right. than that. So uh, just based on what we have left, actually, we, we just sold out of our, our private suites. Um, so we're actually down to our, our shared spaces now uh, is what we have left. Um, as we're getting closer here, we're inside of, I think today's, day 81 from, from tournament weeks. So we're getting very close to it. Yeah, it's and a lot of people look forward to it. This has become really um, just as exciting as the Ryder Cup uh, is for, for many of the folks that are listening in. And, and just explain a little bit for those that maybe are a little bit newer to golf that uh, maybe haven't been around the game that long, exactly what the President's Cup is. So it's very similar to the Ryder Cup um, in that it's a team match play competition, you know, all for pride and country. Um, basically what, uh, what happened was they got to a point where, you know, the, the U S and, uh, and Europe has such a great rich tradition with the Ryder cup. Um, uh, and it's, but the problem is it's, it's only the U S versus Europe, uh, you know, Great Britain, Ireland. And, uh, so they got to a point and said, Hey, we need another event. And so they created the president's cup in 1994. Um, and this is the United States versus the rest of the world. Um, and we basically, unfortunately have to exclude Europe and, and those involved in the Ryder cup in this, um, but it gives us the opportunity opportunity to incorporate great players like Adam Scott, um, Jason Day, Hideki Matsuyama, Siwoo Kim, all these guys, um, you know, around the rest of the world that don't have a team match play competition. Uh, so very similar formats, um, the best 12 players uh, for the United States, best 12 players in the international team from the rest of the world. Um, they do a season-long points race. Uh, to gain access to the team. Uh, the top 10 players at the end of the season have an automatic uh, qualification onto the team, and then they, each captain um, has two wildcard picks or two captain's picks. Right. And, and who are the captains uh, for this go-around, for, for uh, each respectively? Yeah, uh, great question. The U.S. team is captained by Steve Stricker, and then his assistant okay. captains are Fred Couples, Davis Love the third. Uh, Tiger Woods and Jim Furyk, 
And then on the international oh, wow. side, Nick Price is the captain for the international team, and his assistant captains are Ernie Els, Tony Johnstone, Jeff Ogilvie, and Mike Weir. So you have a great well, history, you. a great yeah, lineup a, there on each side. Yeah, I was just going to say you've got a fantastic lineup in that. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, about the President's Cup in a little bit later, but I, I want to give you an opportunity because, you know, as, as we've discussed off-air, um, you've, you've had uh, your own experiences playing uh, tour life, if you will, and I want you to maybe just talk a little bit about um, just how difficult it was, um, you know, for, for you as a player, first off, just to get out on tour, uh, and then just to even sometimes main, maintain your card. Uh, you know, it, it's not a, an easy process, as some might think. So talk about some of the difficulties, what some of the struggles that you went through uh, as, as a player, uh, and, and maybe first talk about what sort of prompted you uh, to get out there and uh, mix it up with some of the best. Yeah, you know, I've been in, in golf all my life. Uh, my father was, was a long-time professional. He played, uh, played the mini tours for a little while, and then he was also uh, a teaching professional. He was the head pro at Detroit Golf Club for you know, about 10 years, uh, 1981 to 19, almost 1991. And uh, so I grew up with the game I mean, ever since I was a little kid. Ever since I could swing a club, I was, I was playing golf. And, you know, I went through the junior ranks in amateur golf uh, through high school and college. I played uh, college golf at the University of Tampa. And, and then I got done with school and, you know, all throughout college, I was kind of like, all right, this is the next step. I'm going from college golf and to, to mini tour golf. And, you know, one of these days, very, very soon, I'll be playing on tour with Tiger Woods. Uh, you know, that's the dream. And, uh, but the reality is, I mean, not to say the reality, but that's the dream, it's, it is what it is, but uh, it, in reality, it's, it's very difficult. Um, there are so many players out there. And I learned really quick when I got done with school um, that my work ethic needed to change and uh, my attitude needed to change about um, you know, how I was going to get there and what I needed to do to get out uh, on tour. Um, playing the knee tour is a grind. Yeah. Let me just interrupt you just for a second, Mike, uh, just to maybe get you to, I, I'm, I'm losing a little bit of the, the sound uh, on your mic. I don't know if the mic has moved or, or something, but maybe. Oh, okay. There you go. I think that's, uh, Sorry that's a little that. bit better. Yeah. It, it, you're, no, that's, that's not a problem. Picked up most of that, but uh, just sort of towards the tail end there. So, uh, you know, obviously as, as you were indicating, it, it's not as uh, an easy process getting out on tour uh, first and foremost, um, but once you're out there, just maybe talk a little bit um, for the listeners' benefit. What some of the challenges that you face week in, week out? Obviously, you know you're there to win the the tournament, um, but uh, obviously in in uh, in reality, that's not always going to happen. Um, just talk about some of the challenges that you faced and some of the ups and downs uh, that you experience week in, week out. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, one of the, the most difficult parts about it is, is the expense part. Um, you know, mini tour golf does not have big corporate sponsors um, for the most part, like the PGA tour, you know, you're, you're not going to play in, in the, uh, you know, the shell Houston open, or, uh, you know, you're not going to play in the Barclays tournament or the Northern trust. Um, you know, you're going to play in the moonlight tour and it's the one day event on the moonlight tour, or you're going to play, uh, on the Hooters tour, and it's uh, you know Hooters was was the big sponsor of that tour for a while. Now it's I believe it's the SwingThought.com tour, um, but there is right. isn't a lot of corporate 
financial backing on the mini tours. Um, so when you go out and play in the mini tours, a lot of your purse money comes from entry fees. So, um, you know, you're, you're paying a lot of money um, up front to play in these events and then you're traveling on top of that to most of them, uh, whether it's, you know, an hour down the road or, or 15 hours in the car or whatever, there's still, there's still travel expenses to it um, on top of the entry fee. And then when you get in and you play in these events, you know, because there's not a lot of money, you know, there's not a lot of payout. Um, you know, most right. of the events on the Hooters tour, you know, the winning check might be, might be 30,000, which is great. But if you're not finishing in the, the top 15, top 20, you're not breaking even on the week uh, with between expenses and entry fee. So, you know, you've got to consistently finish in the top 15, top 20 out there in order to, to break even and, and kind of make your money back. So, uh, and with how many good players there are out there, it's, it's just a very difficult task. I would say that was probably the, the most, the biggest challenge and biggest hurdle I had to, to try and overcome. Um, so it forces you to either get some financial backing, some, uh, some sponsors of your own, or you got to work part-time and, and kind of have something to offset uh, the cost and offset your in- income a little bit. Right. And, and on average, how many tournaments did you play in, in a given year? Did you try to, to uh, was there, a, much like the PGA Tour, was there a minimum requirement of, of t- events that you had to be uh, uh, involved in, or was it pretty much whatever you could uh, manage to put together? No, it was, it was pretty much whatever I could manage to put together. Um, you know, I, I bounced around a lot between, you know, one-day events, one- and two-day events on the Moonlight Tour to, you know, four-day events on the Hooters Tour, um, you know, e-golf tour was, was three and four day events. Um, you know, there's the Florida professional golf tour is, is two day events. Um, and I, I kind of bounced around to all of them. I, there was a couple of seasons where I played, um, you know, straight schedules on the Florida professional tour. Those were all two day events. Um, you know, you pay an entry fee anywhere from, you know, three or $400 to, you know, up to almost a thousand dollars. Um, and then, you know, winning check for those are anywhere from, you know, two, three thousand dollars up to about six thousand dollars. So it just kind of depended on the week and the tournament and the, and the, uh, and the entry fee. Now, did you, you know, we often hear with a lot of the uh, players that have, you know, started out in the mini tours, a lot of them sort of buddy up uh, to events. So obviously, you know, you might have had somebody that um, was in your general area that, was also playing on that you guys sort of carpool, I guess is the, is the term I'm looking for, or, or sort of work together to, to share expense a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of guys on, on the majors, they'll, they'll travel together uh, when they're going to, to tournaments, whether it's, you know, carpooling or once they get there, um, you know, sharing hotel rooms. Um, you know, a lot of guys mm-hmm. have certain places they like to practice and they can team up there. So they know each other, you know, ahead of time real well, um, practice habits and that type of thing. Um, you know, we had a group, I used to practice and play a lot out of uh, the Marriott Grand Vista Resort in Orlando. Uh, I had a great group of guys that I used to practice with there. Um, actually, one of the guys is is from England. He's over on the, uh, was it the Hotel.com EuroPro Tour right now. He actually just had a win a couple of weeks ago. Um, so he's doing really well over there right now. Um, but yeah, we had a great group of guys who used to travel together and room together and um, you know, just a lot of that, you got to share expenses. You got to do what you can to cut costs for sure. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I, I've spoken with other uh, players in, in the past about that very same thing. And, that you know, that was really when you, when you go back in time and you look at players like Hogan and Snead and all of these guys very early on in their career, Billy Casper is another one. When they first started out on tour, and I'm sure even to some degree uh, Jack Nicklaus, uh, a lot of these guys, you know, when they first got out on tour, um, they didn't have a lot of money. The purses weren't anywhere near what they are now. And, um, you know, they either had some sort of, uh, you know, sponsorship or they had uh, somebody basically foot in the bill. But a lot of them traveled. Um, and I'm trying to think, I think it was Hogan that one of them, you know, traveled around in a trailer and and basically camped, uh, you know, near, uh, you know, some of the golf courses that they were playing uh, just because they, they couldn't really do the hotel and it was a cheaper form of travel for them. But, um, you know, so I don't think people, when they look at today's PGA Tour and they see, you know, a 1.5 or 1.8 or, or whatever the, the, the purses are now, uh, you know, millions of dollars, that um, I don't think they appreciate just what some of the earlier players uh, had to go through just to get there. Um, they certainly didn't have uh, the, the resources that they do today. Um what were some of the, the challenges besides, the, obviously, the financial? Um, I'm sure there were days when you got there and, and you were on fire and you just felt that, that uh, you know, a win was within your reach. And then there are other moments that maybe you got there and you just knew you weren't firing on all cylinders. What did you do mentally to overcome that hurdle? Yeah, no, uh, good question. I, you know, you're right. There's, there's days you show up and you feel like you can't miss. And you can go out there and shoot 65, 66, you know, 67 and, and win some of these one-day events and two-day events or, or put yourself in a good spot for, for a multi-day event, uh, you know, right off the bat. Um, and then there's other days when you go out and you don't feel like you can keep it on the planet, uh, much, much less much less the fairway. So, um, you know, right. you got to kind of, you know, I, I always tried to limit my mistakes. You know, if I got out there and I was on the range and it was one of those days where I didn't feel like I had it, I tried to limit my miss to one side of the golf course. Um, and if I could do that, I felt like I could play and score at least a little, little bit better. Um, you know, anytime you get out there and it's, you're missing it. Um, if you can, if you know, it's a miss to the right, or, you know, it's a miss to the left consistently uh, or somewhat consistently, at least you can go out and, you know, predict those shots a little bit easier than if you're missing it both directions or you don't, you don't take the time to figure out which way it's going. Um, you know, some of those golf courses, especially in Florida, where there's a lot of, a lot of trees and out of bounds, a lot of water, you can get yourself in, in yeah. trouble real quick and, and throw up some big numbers for sure. So, you know, you, you got to figure out which way to miss it. Um, you know, this game is a, is a game of misses. You're never going to hit every right. shot perfectly. And, uh, you know, I think Ben Hogan was, was the one who used to say it a lot. He used to shoot 70 and he said, I hit 68 bad shots. I hit two great shots. Uh, you know, it's, right, right. it's just a, it's a game of misses. It's how you miss it around the golf course and, and how you get it in the hole despite, uh, despite not hitting it your best or not having your A game. Right. What, what do you think, Michael, was, was some of your strong uh, points to your game? Where were you strongest in your game and where were you weakest in your game? You know, my length was, was always uh, one of my, one of my best, best parts of my game. I, uh, I was a slightly larger individual, <laughs> about 6'4". I was <laughs> one of the taller guys out there. Right. So, um, you know, I never had any trouble hitting the ball far. Uh, in this day and age, especially, the, you have to do that because everybody's 
their, the defense to, to good golf these days is to make the golf course longer, as we're seeing on the PGA Tour. Uh, we saw that in the U.S. Open a couple weeks ago with, with Aaron right. Hills, I think, was measuring nearly 7,800 yards. So, um, wow. you know, I, I never had a, any trouble hitting the ball far. Uh, you know, short game was always the biggest struggle for me, uh, putting especially. Um, when I was younger, I was well, I was way more enthralled with, with hitting the long ball than I was practicing my putting. Uh, it was just more exciting than – to, to hit it over 300 yards than it was to, to hit three foot putts all day long. So, <laughs> um, but you know, that came around and that, that, that bit me a little bit later on. And I had to really focus uh, my efforts on my short game later on. And I was able to develop right. a, a decent short game uh, when I was at my best. Um, but you know, it's still, there's still guys out there that, that had a, had it better than I did. So there's always somebody that, that's better than you, than you at something. So um, you got to take those weaknesses right. and turn them into strengths. Do you think, um, and a great point, by the way, do you think that um, this is what really sort of stymies a lot of amateur golfers out there is they're all, uh, and, and let's be honest, it is exciting to, you know, to, to step up on the tee and, and know that you're going to hit one 300 yards down the middle of the fairway uh, as opposed to, you know, working on the putting uh, green for 30 minutes or so knowing what you know now um, do you wish in hindsight that you had have spent more time uh, earlier on in your in your uh, uh, golf career uh, on the short game especially in the putting surface oh absolutely uh, you know I when I talk to, to junior and amateur golfers now who ask me you know what would you do differently like you just asked or you know what do you see is is the difference in the younger players that are coming up now Short game and putting is is key. Um, you know, you look at guys like Ricky Fowler, and that guy gets the putter going. It's there's almost no stopping him sometimes. Uh, now, granted, it's it can be a little streaky, but it, you know he's he's a great putter when he's on. Tiger Woods was a fantastic putter. Um, you know, when he was playing in right. his, his top prime of his game. Um, you know, all these guys are at the top of the the leaderboard every week. They're they're fantastic putters. Um, they have fantastic touch around the short short game area, uh, pitching around the greens and stuff. And you look at Jordan Spieth when he gets that putter rolling, I mean, he's unstoppable. Yep. Um, between how straight he hits it and how crisp he hits his irons, uh, when he gets the putter rolling, I mean, forget it. I mean, you might, I hope you have your money on him. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> You know, but but you look at it, it's it's week in and week out. The the guys who are winning these tournaments, they're in the the top top stats of you know strokes game putting and um, you know number one in putting or number one in putts inside of ten feet, number one in putts inside of fifteen feet. The the putting is is what's winning these these competitions for the most part these days out on on tour. Um, everybody's long, um, you know everybody's hitting it far, with the exception of you know a couple of guys here and there, but. They're just lethal with their long irons and their fairway woods, so they they still get it on there in, in regulation. They're just putting the lights out. So, um, you know, putting is, is key, and, I yeah, I really wish I would have spent more time at it. Um, you know, I think it may have changed some things, you know, later on in life, but, you know, I don't regret my time out there. I, I had a blast. I learned a lot, and, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. So some things wish, you wish you could have over again, but uh, but it's okay. It, we're, we're on an hour and yeah, upward now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's like you said, you've gained a lot of experiences that, that you're able to share now in, in uh, both your personal and business life. Um, but let's talk about some of the players and, and some of the different people that you've met along the way. You've obviously had the opportunity to play uh, alongside, uh, I'm sure, many great uh, uh, golfers as they were uh, both coming up and maybe some that had to go back uh, maybe once 
Colts had their card and maybe had to, uh, you know, make a, another attempt at it. Um, talk about some of the people and, and some of the, the events that uh, you had the opportunity to play in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I used to, to work part-time while I was playing on tour. I used to work at uh, at Bay Hill. Uh, so I got to meet and play and practice with a lot of great players out of there. Um, you know, kind of an old-school mm. guy, Dickie Pride, was, was always there. Um, right. He's had a you know, bounce back and forth and web.com and, and PGA tour, but he's got, you know, great career behind him and, and ahead of him still, he's still playing great golf. Uh, so he was always a lot of fun. He's a character. He was a lot of fun to practice and play with. And um, also playing out there, I used to, to practice and play a lot with, with Sam Saunders um, and Billy Hurley used to, to practice and play out of there a lot too. Uh, if you remember, he won quick and loans last year. So he, he really yep. turned his game around and, and turned himself into a great player. Um, so I got to play with those guys a lot. Uh, a lot of web.com players, um, guys that are out there right now. There's a there's a gentleman out on the web.com right, tour right now. His name's Eric Cole. Uh, we used to, to practice and play with him out there. Um, there's so many good players. That was, that was a great golf course uh, to play and practice consistently. Um, and that event was was fantastic to be around. Uh, I got to, to be a part of that event uh, five years in a row and uh, both working behind the scenes, but I also got to be involved in, in some of the pro-ams, uh, both caddying and uh, marshalling and, and the whole bits, um, and really got a, got a full feel of what these guys go through day in and day out on tour. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, and, and a great event too, Bay Hill. Um, you know, that, uh, you don't get much better than that, you know, playing in, in a, a tournament that, uh, um, you know, run, run essentially by Arnold Palmer. And... Um, you know, what a great individual. Did you have the opportunity? I imagine at some point, I'm sure you had the opportunity to meet with him at all. You know, I did. Um, and he was, was every, every bit of the man he was in person that, that everyone described him. Um, I actually was, was fortunate enough to caddy for him one day in, in his daily game. Um, he had a couple of guys that he played for regularly and he, uh, his regular caddy was, was out sick one day and, he didn't know until the last minute and I got selected um, and I dropped everything oh, wow. and I, I got, to, got to go loop for him. And it was probably one of the, the highlights of my life. Um, you know, I rode 18 oh, holes sure. with him in, in his cart, <laughs> drove the cart for him uh, and probably the easiest loop of my life as well. Uh, you know, I, I got the yardage for him. I cleaned his clubs. I raked his bunker and I cleaned his golf ball on the green and, that was all I had to do. Um, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot to it. We got to chat along the way and, you know, he asked me about my golf and where, what I'm doing, where I'm going. Um, you know, and he was just, just such a great guy and still had at that point still had a lot of game. Um, that was a few years ago. That was oh, back yeah. in 2010. So I think he was, you know, 80, 82, 83, something like that. Um, but we get out there and, you know, even at, at that age, he shot 39 on the front. And wow. I, th- I think he had he had four or five one putts. I mean, uh, the, he uh, lost a little bit of energy on the backside, but I mean, to come out there and sh- at 82 and shoot 39 the front at Bay Hill, I mean, he just he had a ton of game. Um, <laughs> so sorry to see him pass this year. He was he was such yeah. a great ambassador of this game and uh, really grew the game to where it is today. Uh, that's for sure. He really put us all on the, on the right track. You know, I remember, yeah, again, well said. You know, I remember uh, as a youngster growing up, and, of course, um, I, I was born in the uh, mid-'60s, so, um, you know, he was just more or less starting out uh first few years on, on tour at that point. 
But I remember when I, I got into my teens and, and a little bit later, you know, watching, uh, and there was an aura about him. I mean, uh, I didn't have uh, the pleasure of meeting him in person, but I did uh, see him in a couple of events over the years uh, in, in person. Uh, so certainly got pretty close to him, but not enough to shake his hand. But it was just, you know, there was an aura about him. There was just something, uh, almost like an energy, uh, I would say, uh, that just drew people to him. It was just his, you know, he had a great personality, just loved the game. Um, you know, as you said, always, you know, had a sort of a steely eye, if you will. Um, and he got down mm-hmm. to business when, when it counted. And and even, at like you said, at 82 years old, to, to shoot 39 on the front, at that age, there's people I know that are 42 that wouldn't shoot 39 in the front at Bay Hill. So, uh, you know, that, that, that goes to say a lot about the man. And just a, a wonderful person from anybody that I've ever spoken to that had uh, – I'm very good friends with um, Byron Casper, of course, son of, of uh, the legendary Billy Casper. And, of course, he's had the opportunity to meet many of the greats over the years, and, and he would concur with everything you said about Arnold Palmer, just uh, a great ambassador to the game and just did so much. And, and um you know, unfortunately, as you said, we lost him this year, but um, he certainly had a full uh, and great uh, life uh, both on and off the golf course and just touched um, so many lives, uh, you know, along the way. Absolutely. So just a, a great gentleman. Um, now, you obviously got to play in a, in a bunch of, yeah, you got to play in a bunch of different events as well uh, on some of the tours. Did you play in very many pro-ams uh, at all in the, in the uh, PGA Tour at all or no? Um, not on the PGA Tour, but there were quite a few events, uh, you know, out of the mini tours where they have pro-ams uh, that kind of help with, with some of the purses, some of the larger events. I played in, in qu- uh, quite a few of those uh, along the way. So not not on the PGA Tour, uh, but on the mini tours, yes. Oh, okay. Um, who impressed you? I mean, obviously besides Arnold and, and maybe some of the other legends of the game, but um, you, again, you had an opportunity to really meet a lot of different people. And, and uh, I think even for another player, when you get out on the, on the practice tee or uh, the practice area uh, before a tournament, you get a chance to kind of eye up and down the range to see, you know, how everybody's doing that. Um, who comes to mind? Is there anybody that comes to mind, uh, Michael, that really impressed you? you thought, wow, this guy's got a solid game. Um, just the way he strikes the ball and, and uh, goes through his routine. Uh, who, who kind of uh, comes to mind? Uh, anybody that really impressed you? Yeah, uh, well, I think you know, Bay Hill. You know, obviously, every year the with the Arnold Palmer Invitational, we got to see the the creme de la creme, um, the best players in the world came to that event. Uh, they still do. Um, you know, and I always made a, a point of of watching, trying to find Tiger on the range, um, and I always wanted to see how he practiced, what it looked like. Uh, what he did, if anything, differently than everyone else that was, was just setting him apart from everyone. Because as we can tell, I mean, he was just was hands down above everyone else in his prime. I mean, there was just no stopping him. And I think the most impressive thing about Tiger was, was watching him hit balls. And you could see him, obviously, he always had his kind of an entourage around him. He had either a swing coach and then, you know, his caddy, um, whether it be Joel Acaba right. or um, Steve Williams. Um, and then there was always people coming up to them and talking to them and the coach and everything. So there's always a little bit of group around him. And it always looked like he would, as soon as he stepped into a shot and put the club down behind the ball, it was like this, you could see it. There was a light switch that went off or went on. And all of a sudden he was fully engaged. There was no distracting mm. him from hitting that shot at that point. It was like he had that ability to just draw it in swing by swing 
And then he would hit the shot. He'd watch it. He would do it, you know, watch where it went, what it did, how it flew, where it landed. And then the switch goes off. And he could turn around and start talking to those guys and messing around or laughing or joking or whatever. But as soon as he put the club down behind the ball, it was, it was that light switch. Um, and I think the guy, the best guys on tour are able to do that. I, he was able to do it more so than, than a lot of the other guys. Uh, but, you know, the other guys on tour, it's what the best guys on tour, that's what they do. They can flip that switch and just instantly be, be into it. Yeah, and, and, and obviously, you know, there's been many comparisons over the years to Nicholas uh, with Tiger, uh, that same type of personality where they're very, um, pardon me, very focused uh, on, on the task at hand and um, very seldom get distracted. I mean, obviously, over, over time, we would see the odd, um, you know, camera or something that would, would draw him away. But you're right, once, he, once that club went behind the ball, it's like he was in another world and that switch got turned on. And until that shot was complete, um, you know, it was almost like he was on another planet, uh, I guess would be the only way he could, could really say yeah, it. Yeah, um, absolutely. It was unbelievable. You know, yeah. And, and you know, I, I had an opportunity uh, over the years as well to watch a number of players. And one that early on that really, uh, and unfortunately he's had some, some mishaps of his own along the way, is John Daly. And one of the things that really impressed me about John Daly is I saw him years ago uh, up at the Canadian Open in, in Glen Abbey, and he had I've mentioned this on the show a few times, but he had come out to the range, and there was an, a part of the range that um, they had a a, um, uh, a practice green in that, but where the teeing area was slightly elevated, I would say um, maybe about three, four feet above uh, where the putting surface was. And he would often get on the very end of that teeing area and take out his, you know, his 60 degree wedge and the green would maybe be, as I said, about three or so feet down and maybe about five feet out. And, you know, of, of course, John Daly would take that big arc and he would just lob these shots, you know, about, it, it seemed like they were going up a mile and they would come down and they would just be so <laughs> gingerly. And, and I mean, he would only be like a few feet away from his target, but he would take a full swipe at that ball and it would just pop up you know, several feet and then just drop down. And he would hit about 30 of them like that and just amaze the crowds. And it was so bad one time, I remember when he was doing that, that people started moving in tighter from the from the gallery that was watching all the other guys hit. And they were moving down because they were just amazed at what he was, it just how the, the finesse of his, <laughs> uh, his wedge game was. And, you know, it's That's unfortunate that he talent. had some other issues. Yeah, just, I mean, I, I'd never seen anybody eat it. I mean, I've seen... Lots of guys uh, have phenomenal wedge play. Tom Kite, uh, you know, old school comes to mind, but I've never seen anything like that. Even Mickelson, uh, you know, Phil Mickelson, of course, has a phenomenal uh, short game, and especially with his wedge play. But even he, uh, at times, uh, I think John Daly would, would, would edge him on that one. But um, just very interesting to watch those guys. Um, something else I want to ask you as well, while we're on the topic of, of players and that, obviously there's a lot of, uh, a lot of guys that don't make it out there. What in your mind, I mean, because you've seen it firsthand, what in your mind, Michael, sort of separates the guys that are out in tour from some of the ones that never make it? What's what's the difference, uh, you know, in, in the players? You know, I think there's uh, there's a confidence factor um, in the guys that, that make it versus the guys that don't. Um, 
you know, I, I had a lot of discussions, like I said, with, with Dickie Fry when I was at Bay Hill, and that guy's been around for, for so many years and seen the ins and outs, right. and he's played all over. Um, he's played all over the world. And, you know, one thing I've noticed about these guys that, that make it on tour, the Dickie Prides, um, you know, I caddied in Stuart Sink's group in, in the Pro-Am once at Bay Hill. I got to talk a lot to him, who is he was a great guy. I can I can go back on that in a few minutes. Um, but he's mm-hmm. he's another example of the confidence you know, these guys wake up every morning. It's, it seems like, in my opinion, these guys wake up every morning, and no matter what shape their game is in, if they're hitting their driver crooked, if they're hitting their irons crooked, if they're not putting well, it doesn't matter. They believe in some way, shape, or form they can get up on any given day, on any given golf course, and they have the ability to shoot 60. And that confidence, wow. you know, whether you've, whether you've got, got it or not, uh, whether you've got your game or you don't have your game, that, to have that confidence to go out there and say, okay, okay, I know I don't have my driver today, but I'm so confident in my short game or my iron play that I believe I can still get it around 60. Or I don't, you know, I don't have my mm-hmm. iron play, but I've got everything else. I can still get it around at 60. I mean, that's that's just a confidence level that I mean, I think it really separates them. Um, and you see glimpses of, the, glimpses of it in these guys in the mini tours who they have some great weeks where they really have the confidence up and they really believe in themselves. Um, and they kind of get to that level, uh, but it doesn't stay there. It doesn't maintain. Um, you know, I can honestly say that there was days when I think the best I ever got was, you know, I, I believed I could shoot 63, 64, um, you know, it didn't always happen, but, you know, I believed it at, at certain points in my, the high time of my, my career. So, um, but I never got to that point where I felt like I could shoot 60 at, on any given day. Uh, and I think that's, that's right. one thing, just a self-confidence like that really separates, um, the guys who make it from the guys who don't, um, to, to, to be able to do that on any given golf course at any time. It's just, that's unreal, unreal to me. Yeah. You know, and just to touch on Tiger again, just for a second, you know, one of the interesting things a lot of people don't realize, and obviously through the uh, wonderful editing of television, you know, most of the time, now in Tiger's case, you did see some bad shots along the way, but for the most part, you obviously saw a lot of great uh, shots from him. Uh, and, and I understand why why it's done that way for, for um, viewer uh, purposes. But um, one of the, th- I think, the things that really separated Tiger um, apart from a lot of the players is he was not really... Um, I wouldn't consider him one of the greatest drivers of the ball. I mean, he could certainly hit a long way, and there were times when he could be very accurate with his driver or three-wood. But he was a great scrambler. I mean, I can remember many, many times, uh, I think one was at the Buick Open, one of the first ones he played in, uh, and he ended up um, hitting a six-iron out of of deep rough and ended up landing, you know, uh, I think 10, 12 feet from the pin, Uh, you know, going around trees, up and over, you know, this, and, and uh, over a bunker, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, he just had an ability that even if his tee shot didn't hit the ideal target he wanted, um, that didn't, you know, that didn't sort of throw that hole away for him. He knew how to scramble. He knew how to to recover very well. And I think that also separates, would you agree, uh, a lot of the really good players from some of the guys that are maybe just a good ball striker, but maybe just don't have that, that inner self um, ability to, to be able to go out and, and, and do it uh, when it, when it's called for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to that point, and I think kind of something I was, was touching on earlier when, when I mentioned, uh, you know, the days when I didn't have it, what did I do to, to get around, you know, 
Tiger had a, a great ability to figure out which way it wasn't going. You know, he could stand up on the range and say, okay, I, you know, maybe it is going crooked today off the driver. As you point out, it, it does very often or did yeah. very often. Um, sure. But he, he never, you know, it's one thing he never, I don't remember too many times where he was hitting it out of bounds. It was crooked, no. but it wasn't out of bounds. It was still in play in some shape or form. And he just believed, okay, I hit it wherever I want. Yeah, I want to hit it down the fairway, but, you know, if as long as it's in play, I'll go chase it, and I'm confident enough that I'll hit either I'll find an opening and get that iron on the green, or I'll get it close enough where yep. I, know I can pitch it and get up and down. So, I mean, that's that's just, you know, he never put himself in a position where he was going to make – you know, six or seven or an eight, or at least most of the time he didn't. Uh, obviously, he did make some of those scores. Right. But, um, it's just, you know, he believed that he could do it, um, you know, even with a crooked driver. So, um, yeah, I wish he would have hit a trader more often. I think we would have seen some different numbers. But, you know, he was – you're right. He was able to scramble, and he was able to to get himself out of trouble, I think, better than anyone, in, maybe in history. Yeah. Um, and, and you're exactly right. You know, I remember – What's kind of interesting, I remember, again, going back to the Canadian Open uh, when he hit that six iron out of the bunker on 18 uh, oh, yeah. and put it, you know, uh, in that, that famous shot that we all see. Well, what was kind of interesting is several, uh, probably a, a decade or so at least, maybe two decades earlier, um, I was uh, at uh, probably my very first uh, event, uh, which was, the, of course, the Canadian Open, and Jack Nicholas hit a four iron from that same position. Um, so again, it just shows you the difference in club selection yeah. uh, at that time. Um, but basically had similar results. I mean, he, you know, he just picked it clean and, and uh, it, it was just amazing, you know, to see some, I mean, and I, I've played, I mean, I don't know if you uh, realize this or not, but I'm obviously I am Canadian, but um, I uh, grew up in around that area uh, in Oakville, Ontario, and uh, used to go to the Canadian open and regular. And I've seen, some of the best of the best, you know, Lee Trevino and Nicholas and, and uh, many of the great uh, players. And it was just kind of interesting to, you know, to see, uh, I mean, most people, most amateurs faced with that same scenario in that bunker, um, having to hit a six iron over water to a very skinny green uh, front to back uh, just would, would, would be panicking. And, and Tiger and, and of course, Jack in his time, uh, just, you know, got down to business. They just, you know, had to get it done and they did. And that, you know, that goes to that sort of inner, uh, I guess, inner strength that you have to have. And, and I think that's another thing that really separates, would you agree, uh, from a lot of the, the guys out on tour to, to many of our amateurs out there is there's just a difference, sort of an internal dialogue um, that these guys have to, to really, you know, I guess, sell themselves on um, that a lot of our amateurs seem to struggle with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to that, that same shot, I mean, to hit that six iron from out of a bunker in from more than 200 yards, you know, much less. Yes. I mean, that, to hit six <laughs> iron, I think it was like 208 or 210 or something like that. I mean, most right. of these guys don't hit a, just a stock six iron further than about, you know, 190, um, you know, with the exception of a couple of guys out right. there. So for him to step up there and say, okay, I'm, you know, to kind of use the adrenaline and know that, you know, where it's going to go and how far it's going to fly with a six iron from there uh, out of a trap. And that was just an unbelievable shot, but you're right. That, that internal dialogue is just, it's different. They're they're They've wired themselves differently. And some days they've, they've sold themselves on the story a little bit. Actually, I got a funny story um, in regards to that. 
Sure. If we if we have a few minutes, uh, I was caddying in yeah, the program sure. yeah. uh, with with Stuart Sink at uh, at Bay Hill one year, and for those of you who who don't know the Bay Hill uh, golf course, the tenth hole is a is a short par four dog leg, but it goes almost ninety degrees to the right, and you have to go around some trees, and there's actually some houses to the right, so you have out of bounds right, and then <laughs> through the fairway on the other side, you have out of bounds on the other side. And it was really interesting after playing that golf course so many times, I, during the tournament, I, I observed that it was about a 50-50 split of the guys who hit driver off the tee and tried to take it over the corner in front of the green, and the other half hit right. hybrid or iron down to the middle of fairway and left themselves, you know, 150, 160 yards in. So we're playing in the Pro-Am, and Stuart Sink steps up. I mean, no hesitation, hits driver over the corner. He's in the middle of the fairway. He's got about 60 yards to the green. We're walking down the fairway, and I explained the same thing. I said, look, I've observed this. I'm just curious, you know, what? It, why did you hit driver there as opposed to hitting the hybrid? Just what's your, your mindset? And he didn't miss a beat. He looked me right in the eye and just said, because I can. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was just that confidence of. I, because, I, because I can. I mean, I'm going to. That's, that's just the shot I drew up in my head. And there is no other shot. So I just, that always just resonates to me when, I talk, when you talk about the inner confidence and the inner, inner speak uh, of some of these guys on tour. Uh, just the, the way they think and the way they're wired internally is, is incredible. Well, and, and you know, you're, you're exactly right. And you know what? What's interesting, Michael, is this. You know, when you, uh, you know, I, I teach uh, golf and I work with a lot of mainly corporate types, but. Um, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll come with sort of the traditional, you know, can you fix this? Can you fix that? And what always amazes me is they'll come, you know, a, a couple of weeks outside of an event that they're playing in, maybe their corporate event or, or something else that they're, uh, maybe they want to play in a pro-am. And, you know, they'll, they'll ask me pretty much to reinvent the wheel in two weeks' time. And, you know, it, it's just not going to happen. So I always fall back to them and I always say, you know, what shot are you comfortable with? What shot do you know is going to get you in the fairway ever, every time? It doesn't matter whether it's with your driver. It doesn't matter whether it's with a hybrid. Um, you've got to have that go-to shot. And I think this is another thing that a lot of sort of separates the pros from uh, the amateurs out there is they know where their strengths and weaknesses are. And they know that in, in a case where they are unsure that in their traditional sense they're going to get, uh, as Stuart did with that driver, they have a go-to shot they know they can count on. And this is what I would advise them a lot of times is to use that go-to shot anytime that they're even the slightest bit hesitant about pulling that driver out of the bag, particularly. Um, and, and this goes to, I think the players as well. Um, you know, Tiger quite often would hit that stinger with his two iron um, when he needed accuracy more so than distance. And um, did you have a shot like that in your bag uh, when you were playing out on tour? Yeah, you know, I was always very confident um, in a little hybrid club I had. Uh, it was kind of this little bullet club. I couldn't get it more than I actually still have it. Um, I can't, couldn't, I still can't get it more than about you know fifteen, twenty feet off the ground. But it's, it's just a consistent straight shot every time, uh, and I can work it a little bit left mm-hmm. to right each time. Uh, but it's just, it's just one club I have in the bag that's. I'm confident in, um, you know, that when the driver's going crooked or I don't feel confident in the three wood or, you know, even the three iron, I can go to this, that club and, and say, Hey, you know, if we need a good tee shot here, put this one in play. It doesn't matter how far it goes. The hybrid comes out and that's where we go. Uh, and I think that's a great point um, that a lot of amateur players, especially um, don't take into effect 
when they're out there playing. They don't they don't realize that, you know, trying to hit some of those hero shots from the rough from 240 yards on a par five when they can't get realistically get there uh, in one shot, you know, that's when they bring six and seven and eight into play when, you know, if they were to take a, you know, a pitching wedge or a nine iron to hit it down the fairway and to hit the wedge on the green, you know, you're taking six, seven and eight out of play and you're, you're, you know, you might make five on a par four, but you're not making, you know, triple or quad. So uh, I think that's definitely a great point and, right. and really can lead to some better scores consistently uh, when you can play a, a confident shot uh, rather than, than the hero shot or, or just the, the shot you're not confident in uh, when you're out of the golf course. Yeah, I, I agree. Exactly. Um, you know, the other thing too, Michael, and I'm sure, you know, playing in a number of pro-am events over the years, uh, you got a, a chance to really observe some of the amateurs out there that, that were in your group um, what were some of the common errors that you would see? I mean, obviously, you know, people hit a bad shot here and there, but um, what were some of the common mistakes? Uh, often I hear, speaking with other professionals, they'll say um, not taking uh, enough club is, is a big one. What were some of the other things uh, besides that, that that you noticed as well that that um, you tried to to assist them on uh, when you were playing in the in the pro am? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's that's a big one is is not taking enough club. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys out there that that believe you know because they hit a seven iron 180 yards one time that they hit a seven iron 180 yards um, when in reality right. they <laughs> probably hit it 160 or 165. So I, I right. think uh, right. you know, really being in tune with with how far you consistently hit your irons I think really helps a lot. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely think um, club selection is a big one. And I, I think the point I was just touching on before is, is playing the shots uh, that you're, you're confident in, not, not going for the hero shots. Um, you know, playing shots that are going to keep you in, in decent scores as opposed to um, the shots that are, you know, they might get you on the green in a, in a par four out of the woods but you know what, when, when you have a little window to hit out of, as opposed to just pitching out in the fairway and hitting on the green, you know, you got to go with the higher percentage shots. Um, that was a big thing I saw and I still see to this day. And a lot of players just don't play uh, the high percentage shots. Um, they play the ideal shot. They play the shot that they think Tiger Woods would hit, or they think the sh- they play the shot that, you know, maybe they've right. done one time in their, their history, um, but they don't, they're not able to do it consistently. Um, and I think that's when people really get into trouble is when they try and do stuff beyond their, their consistent abilities. Right. Yeah, I, I often, uh, I can remember playing on a number of courses where, um, you know, especially here in Florida, you see things like this all the time, but there would be uh, maybe a, a swampy or a marshy area um, right on the other side of the tee box uh, and it might carry, you know, 200 yards uh, until you reach the fairway. And I would see a lot of people that I know just cannot hit that far, try to, you know, see if they can get it over. And I don't know how many times, you know, you would just hear that <laughs> plunk and, the, you know, the, the ball would go into the swamp or the water and, you know, it would be uh, food for the gators. But um, and, and you just, you know, and yet there would be a good layup area that was maybe about 30 yards shorter uh, and they just wouldn't go for it. They just, you know, come heck or high water, they were going to pull out that driver and see if they could go for it. And especially a lot of our senior players that just don't have the, the same uh, physical uh, abilities that they once did um, just are not going to be able to go for it. Some of them have smartened up over the years, I think, finally. But uh, there's still a few out there. I think ego gets in the way. 
Um, and uh, and I'm sure, you know, as I uh, get into my second half of life, I'm sure that's probably going to be one of my problems as well. But I've started to smarten up a little bit. Um, Michael, let me ask you uh, <laughs> something else here about about <laughs> about playing uh, out on tour. What was your mindset when you came into a tournament, any given tournament? Um, you know, did you have a game plan set when you came in? I mean, especially if you were playing a course you'd played before, you knew uh, where the troubles were on, on hole by hole. Um, what was your mindset and and what just sort of walk us through a little bit, obviously not the whole course, but uh, uh, what was sort of the mindset that you had when you coming into a tournament that helped you prepare? Yeah, I, you know, I always tried to get out to whatever golf course I was playing, um, whether it was, you know, ahead of time. So whether it was just a local qualifier, one day qualifier or a four day event, I always try to get out at least once ahead of time and either play the golf course or at least walk the golf course and take some notes, um, you know, figure out where the trouble is on each hole, uh, figure out basically the spots. I want to miss it if I'm going to miss it and figure out the spots. I definitely don't want to be. Um, and then I would kind of make a little notebook and, or, you know, some of these golf courses, we didn't have yardage books. Um, so I'd have to make my own yardage book right. um, and do some measurements and stuff like that. It really helped me prepare so that come tournament day, you know, I know when I step up on the fourth tee and there's a blind tee shot, I know that, you know, it might be blind, but I know there's there's room to the right and there's out of bounds left. And I can't see either one, but I know I can go to the right. Um, so it's, I did a lot of that. Um, you know, that's what these guys are doing out on tour. Um, you know, and that's what their caddies are doing for them. And that's, I think that's why they're so successful. They're prepared. They know what the holes are like and they've, they're able to map out their rounds and, and these guys, you know, with how consistent they are, they're able to see every shot beforehand um, so that, mm-hmm. you know, only little things throw them off a little bit, like the wind or, you know, pin placement or didn't quite catch one perfectly solid or something like that. That's when these guys miss. But for the most part, they know what's going to happen ahead of time. Um, and that's the mentality I always tried to take to, to my events was, was knowing what I'm getting myself into on each and every hole. And the other thing too is, all right, you know, I've mapped up the course. I know my yardages. I know my distances. I know where I can, can miss it. I know where I can can make some great shots. Um, I know which holes are harder than the next one. Uh, but I also know where in the round I can make up shots. That was a big thing. Um, so I knew which holes not to press on. You know, there are certain par fours out there where, you know, if I got two or three bogeys early in the round and I come up on a par four that's, you know, 490 yards, you know, I'm still looking to make make par there or or make a good birdie i'm not looking to to make up the shot there i'm going to wait and maybe take some more risk on the the 300 yard drive a par four um you know it's a little bit later in the round so um you know knowing where you can make up shots um you know later on in the round is also a key point that i i try to take to each and every round as well yeah, and that's that's some great points. Um, let me ask you another question too. Um, you know, Nicholas talked about uh, many times in interviews that certain courses didn't fit his eye. Um, obviously, he, his natural uh, ball flight was left to right. Uh, he played a, a nice little fade, and and um, that was what worked for him. So certain courses uh, he found more challenging because it was more of a right to left shot in many cases um, that was neat, especially off the tee. Um, were the courses, were you pretty much able to work the ball both ways confidently enough that that wasn't an issue for you? Or uh, were, course, were there some courses out there that maybe didn't fit your eye uh, as well, uh, much like Nicholas? 
you know, there's you're always going to come across courses where um, it, you don't they don't fit your eye. Uh, just for some reason, you step up on the tee and you just you can't visualize the shot. Um, so you know, I think at my my best, I was I felt pretty confident to work it both ways. But I always preferred holes that if it was going to dog leg or the hole was going to move one direction or the other, I always preferred it to move right to left. Um, I was always uh, mm-hmm. a better drawer of the golf ball than I was a fader of the golf ball. Um, right. And, you know, I always prefer golf courses like that. So, um, you know, when I got on a golf course where, where all the dog legs went left to right, it created some challenges for me, um, especially when there was very tree lined or there's a lot of out of bounds. So, you know, that's when you got to have the discipline, which <laughs> I didn't always have, but you got to have the discipline to dial back and play to those, those confident shots. Like you said earlier, you know, to, to not hit driver if you're not feeling a hundred percent or to, you know, hit an iron when, when maybe it might leave you, you know, a longer shot into the green, um, you know, that's just, you got to adjust your game plan so that you can get around that golf course and play to your strengths and get around in a decent number and still compete. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you watch um, a, a lot of these guys out on tour today, I mean, it just boggles the mind, you know, when you sort of flash back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, and you watch, say, somebody like an Arnold Palmer and even Jack. I mean, um, you know, there were a lot of areas of Jack's game that, that by today's standards may not be considered um, great. Uh, certainly he could hit it a mile, and um, a lot of people have critiqued his wedge game over the years. But somehow, shape, or form, he always had shots that he knew he could count on. Uh, his putter, I mean, was just unbelievable. I, I swear there was a magnet in the ball or something um, that just drew it to the <laughs> bottom of the cup every time. But um, you know, he just always seemed to know, um, when you get out on that golf course, I think, you know, there was a part of him that just knew that he was going to walk away uh, on the final round, the winner of that tournament. Um, you know, he just had that confidence about him and just had the ability to, to draw on, on all of that knowledge and strength. And even at a very early uh, point in his career, he had a lot of confidence. And what was kind of interesting, and I want to ask you about this as it pertains to other uh, players, um, there was only one point in his career, and I, and I believe it was in the, the uh, uh, late 60s, where he actually tried to change um, uh, coaches, if you will, and tried to, to really mix it up a little bit um, differently than what he had been doing for years. And it actually did not serve him well. And the very next um, you know, few months later, he, he actually went back to um, – um, um, I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name off the top of my head – um, his, his coach for many years, but, um, you know, he tried to make a change and it just didn't work for him. Do you think that some of the players, and I'm going to name a couple tiger being one, Nick Faldo and a few others out there that have really made, uh, tried to make a lot of changes in their game, even though they, they've had some phenomenal uh, success has worked to their detriment in some cases. Oh, good question. Um, you know, I think in, in some cases, yes. Um, you know, I, in the case of this tiger, for example, um, you know, it's, it's hard to see a guy that was so on top of his game to, to kind of be where he's at now with his game. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of that's the personal life as well, but, um, sure. Uh, we won't go into that, that part, but, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to see. Um, you know, I, I felt like with Tiger, I felt like he was 
I mean, he's doing great things when he was with Butch Harmon, and he was doing great things. I mean, yeah. He won six or seven majors when he was with Hank Haney. Uh, I think he won six majors. So um, to see him to try and switch and to, to, to try and move on to someone else in a different philosophy was Sean Foley. And then uh, I can't remember the guy's name who was after that. Uh, but Chris, you know, anyways, um, Chris Combs. Chris Combs. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to see because you, you see it going so well with some of these other instructors. Um, but at the same time, with how confident these guys are, they must see something that believes that th- makes them believe they're going to get better. They must see something in the way that, you know, he must've seen something in the way that Sean Foley was teaching that, um, you know, that made him think that he could, he could do better than, than with his Hank Haney. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer though, if, if it's not working, um, you know, maybe, maybe go back. So I would have loved to see him go back to, to Hank Haney or Butch or, you know, uh, go back to his, his winning ways a little bit, but, you know, he obviously saw some, something that, uh, you know, a way for him to get better, uh, with these other, other coaches and other coaches and other instructors. And, you know, I wish he could get back to the, the winning ways. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Michael, I think that the reason why I was asking that is, you know, I can think of a number of players, and one that comes to mind, and, and I, I hate to, to, to throw him out there, but, you know, Ian Baker Finch, uh, you know, for years was, mm-hmm. was a great player on, on tour and then sort of got to a point where, you know, he lost that confidence and he tried several things. And I wonder sometimes, and I, I talked about this recently on a show, that I think that there's a segment of the, of the golfing world, if you will, and, and I'm talking about some of the, the, the top players, of course, that are, are sort of in that, that, um, that sort of seeking that perfection, if you will. Nick Faldo is another one that comes to mind. It just, you know, was a terrible player when he first came out in tour years ago over in Europe uh, and then got uh, connected with, uh, of course, Ledbetter and, and enjoyed a, a phenomenal successful career and then kind of went out on his own and kind of, you know, tried to tinker yeah. with, with the swing even more. And it, and it got to a point where, you know, he almost reverted back into to his earlier times where he just was not able to put, uh, and certainly hits the ball well and uh, don't want to say that he can't, but um, it almost like he, he kind of went backwards a little bit. And I, and I wonder sometimes, do you think, Michael, that some of these players are, are sort of, um, they get to a certain level and they plateau and they think, okay, maybe if I make these changes here, I can get to that next level even further. And it's almost in a pursuit of perfection. Do you think sometimes that some players get a little bit obsessed with that perhaps and, and unfortunately don't always have good results. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and in the case of, of Ian Baker Finch, it, I think he, he made some changes in, in, in that pursuit of perfection. I think, you know, almost, I think it kind of toyed with his, his confidence. Um, you know, it was yes. like, okay, I've, I've got it here. I think I can get to this point. These are the changes I think that, can get me there. So I'm going to make them. Then you make the changes um, and you practice hard at it. You work hard at it. You make the changes, you get it ingrained in you, but it's not going there. Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now what do I have to change? And then all of a sudden that you're overthinking it and it, it starts playing with your confidence because you're not hitting it well, then you're not scoring well. And then that's playing with your confidence of, you know, am I as good a player as I used to be? Can I still do this? Um, And, you know, even at that level, those, those guys, you know, when it's, what's teetering a little bit on that confidence level that there's the same type of thoughts these guys go through. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I think it, it can be a detriment. Some of these guys overthink it a little bit. Um, that could be, you know, kind of what, what Tiger's going through. He's, he's just, he's got too many thoughts going. Um, 
You know, he needs yeah. to get back to those days of, you know, when he's coming right out of college and uh, he'd right out of the PGA Tour and it didn't seem like he cared. Oh, I mean, obviously I knew he cared, but it didn't seem like he was thinking about right. it. It was just, I'm going to be, I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. <laughs> there was no thought of swing and yeah. what direction it was going or where the ball was going. It was just, get out of my way. I'm going to win. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think yeah. that can definitely yeah, and, affect your confidence. Yeah, and I agree with that, Michael. And I think that this is really, and, and again, I'm, you know, I'm obviously don't work with Tiger Woods, so I, I can't, you know, speak for. Uh, what's going through his mind, but I really think it's it's become a confidence issue for him. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that you know he's he he knows he's able to get to that level. Uh, he's you know struggling with a lot of uh, back issues. He's had multiple surgeries on his back and and multiple on his knee as well. Um, and I think that um, you know and of course he's he's getting he's in his 40s now, so he's getting to that age where. Uh, and I can speak from from personal experience that you know the aches and pains. I'm in my 50s now, so aches and pains. Or I can guarantee you uh, around uh, Amen Corner, and uh, you know I, I think for a lot of players like Tiger, um, you know there's no ifs ands and buts. He, he's a phenomenal ball striker. He can you know work magic with those clubs. But I think when the confidence starts to, to shake a little bit, I think it's very very difficult, regardless of who you go to, um, making swing changes or, or that sort of thing. Um, and trying to find something new is, is not going to necessarily work. I, and I, I agree with you. I think that maybe uh, going back to things that he knows um, worked for him over the years, uh, again, going to those go-to shots, if you will, I think would make a world of difference. And I think as time went on, it would regain his confidence. Now, whether he chooses to do that or not, um, or, or look in that direction, he may, uh, there may come a point in time where he may just say, that's, that's it. And I've got too many other things I want to do. And I, I can't spend more time, uh, trying to come back out, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I you know, uh, root for him all the time. I, I want to see him out there. I think he's great for the game, and it's just uh, a great guy to watch. So you know, it's it's hard to say when you're not inside the guy's head, but um, th- that's just my thought, my take on it. I just think it's a confidence issue. I don't think it's a, an ability issue. I just think it's confidence, and he's got a lot of hurdles that he's trying to get over and 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 get around, and it's not always easy, um, especially when you got to do it in the, in the public forum. Um, yeah, true. Let me just switch gears. Yeah, let me just switch gears real quick here. And I know, uh, obviously, you get a, an opportunity to see a lot of the guys, but a lot of changes have happened as well in the LPGA with the women's uh, tour, and and uh, a lot of great young up-and-comers uh, as well uh, from from literally all around the globe. I mean, they just really have stepped it up. And then, obviously, uh, uh, the early announcement of the sort of partnership with the PGA Tour as well. Uh, can you share anything about that? Some of the things that. Uh, uh, are going to be happening in, in the next little while between those two organizations. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many good players on the LPGA tour. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, it seems like every week there's, there's somebody new uh, atop the leaderboard. There's somebody new atop the world rankings. Um, you know, the, the money list is just doesn't ever seem to be the same. There's, there's some consistent names up there, you know, Lexi Thompson, Brooke Henderson, um, right. you know, in B Park, you know, a lot of these these girls have been around for a long time, uh, or you know, had great success in recent years. Uh, Michelle Wee, sorry, is another one that uh, I should mention. Um, yeah. So, 
you know, I, I think there's some consistency, consistent girls up there on the leaderboard or on the money list, but it's just, it's amazing to me the the number of, of great players that seem to, to come in and out every single year. It's so competitive out there. Um, and for, for the PGA Tour to, to partner with the LPGA Tour is just a, another great step, um, you know, in, in the, the challenge to grow the game um, and become more integrated, you know, with both tours and, um, you know, we're working hand in hand with, with the LPGA tour to, uh, you know, hopefully start putting together some, some great, uh, great partnerships and synergies between the two organizations. I know we've, we had a great addition of, of putting the LPGA tour um, leaderboard and website on the, on the PGA tour app this year, which is great. Um, you know, kind of have a, mm-hmm. a seamless, you know, um, seamless edge and listening to right to the LPGA tour now right from the PGA tour app. So that's great. Um, so I think any way we can, can partner with them um, and any way we can work hand in hand together to, to grow the game, I think is really important and is only going to help us moving forward. Yeah. Michael Wan's done a great job as the commissioner of the LPGA, um, you know, over these last few years, particularly, he's just really, um, help to, to launch that brand. Um, you know, the LPGA, of course, has been around. I had the, the uh, honor and, and privilege of speaking with one of the original founders, Shirley Spork, um, back a few months ago. And uh, I think she's, uh, don't quote me, but I think she's around 90, maybe 91, still plays, you know, still just uh, full of fire and, and one of the original 13 founders of the LPGA Tour. And, you know, she's just really excited about some of the many uh, things that are happening now. And and, you know, I think it's just a natural progression for the game, for the, for the tours to sort of come together. Uh, is there anything in the mix so that you can share with it? I mean, some things you may not be able to share with us, but uh, uh, any plans for any uh, future events that are going to uh, sort of have a collaboration between the two? I mean, there was obviously that Wendy's Three Tour Challenge that we used to see um, um, with a lot of the um, ladies and then, uh, of course, the, the senior men and, and the regular tour and that. But is there any uh, opportunities, do you think, uh, going to be coming out of that, that new sort of uh, – um, I don't want to say partnership, but involvement with the PGA Tour uh, events where they may have even in a in a um, uh, a charity event or something where they'll have the the men and the and the ladies uh, uh, competing in an event. Yeah, I, you know, I, I I can't speak to any specific events um, that are are coming up or in in the works, um, but I do know that okay. both organizations are working together every day uh, to try and make that happen. You know, I think the the Wendy's Three Tour Challenge was was a great start, um, and I think it's yep. really going to help you know launch use use that as a platform to help launch um, you know an integrated uh, integrate both tours uh, together in, in future events. Um, I, I hope to see some, some more of those events. I think, I mean, those girls out there, you know, anyone who thinks the girls in the LPGA tour can't play golf, Oh man, you're wrong. Those girls can stick <laughs> Oh boy. They got, they got some game out there. Yeah. Go watch them play. Um, so, you know, I think anytime we can, yeah. we can integrate the LPGA tour and the PGA tour um, in any way, shape or form and, and create that competition. Um, I think is, is great for the game. And I think it's going to uh, do nothing but help grow the game for sure. Yeah, um, I, I agree wholeheartedly. You know, it, it's very um, interesting. I, I also host another show uh, Tuesday mornings called The Women of Golf with uh, LPGA professional Cindy Miller. Um, you may or may not be familiar with her. But um, Cindy and I have had the opportunity to speak with um, some great young ladies off the Symmetra Tour that sort of up-and-comers and, and uh, of course, some of the, the legends from the uh, the LPGA Tour and that. And, I mean, it's just amazing the energy that's in that tour. Um, I, I think it's, it's not only going to – 
the, the arrangement or the partnership between the two tours is not only going to obviously benefit the LPJ, but I think uh, the other way is round uh, as well. I mean, there's just uh, an incredible amount of energy in the LPJ tour right now that uh, I think is contagious. And I think even the PGA tour is going to benefit uh, uh, from that relationship. So uh, the, these ladies are, are, are great. It's just amazing. Some of the, the young, uh, young ladies and even some of the seasoned veterans that play uh, this game to the, to this day, um, just uh, are just love the game and are looking for any way possible to uh, do their part in helping to grow it. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, as we get sort of winding down here a little bit, Michael. Let's talk about the uh, the 2017 uh, Presidents Cup uh, a little bit uh, more. Maybe just for the folks that are maybe tuning in a little bit later in the broadcast. Um, let's uh, let's start with the dates and and where it's being held and and uh, maybe some of the contenders that are going to be involved in it and and anything that you want to add in there as well. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this has been this has been my my tournament, my baby here for the last uh, almost two years. I've been working on this, so uh, we're really excited. Uh, Presidents Cup uh, is being held uh, September 26th through October 1st. The tournament days are September 28th through October 1st. There's two practice rounds. Uh, we're being held at Liberty National uh, right here in Jersey City, uh, up in New Jersey. So we're we're located right at Jersey's. Uh, excuse me, at Liberty State Park in Jersey City. So we overlook the Statue of Liberty and then the Manhattan skyline oh, wow. at the backdrop to the whole golf course. So the, the place is phenomenal. Um, actually, if you go on mm. presidentscup.com, um, obviously there's all the full information about the event, but there's also some pictures from around the property as well. And you can really get a full feel for um, for what it's like and, and what it's going to be like during the tournament. Um, and actually in the hospitality section, we have some virtual venues um, that really – uh, paint the picture of what it's like. We we had a company come in and, and take some pictures and build this this website for us, and it shows you what the the build out is going to be with all the hospitality tents and everything on course. Um, you can kind of oh, tour wow. the golf course that way. Uh, so it really gives you a feel for what it's going to be like in the event. It's, it's going to be phenomenal. We're we're so excited. Yeah, you know, it's always, and of course, this is a little bit different. Maybe you can talk again for the benefit of some of those that maybe aren't familiar with the President's Cup a little bit about the type of tournament it is. Obviously, it's different than your traditional stroke play. Talk a little bit about that, what the format is, and maybe some of the players that are going to be involved in it. Yep. Yeah, uh, so this is a it's a match play event. So you have the the best twelve players from the United States playing against the best twelve players from the rest of the world, um, excluding Europe, unfortunately, just because they have the Ryder Cup. So this incorporates everyone else. Um, so the international team is you know right now incorporates guys like Hideki Matsuyama, Jason Day, Adam Scott, Charles Schwartzel. Uh, Louis Oosthuizen, uh, Siwoo Kim, who just won the Players Championship and is playing phenomenal golf right now. Um, and then the flip side on the American side, you know, you got a lot of the big names um, that you see day in and day out: um, Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, uh, Daniel Berger just won recently. Uh, or excuse me, was in contention to, to win a Travelers. I apologize, uh, but he won at uh, FedEx. Um, Kevin Kisner, Ricky Fowler, Brooks Koepka, U.S. Open champion. So you know, it's. This wow. is, um, you know, 24 of the top 40, maybe even you stretch the top 50 players in the world. Uh, we incorporate some of the captain's picks, but this is the creme de la creme. Um, you know, they play head-to-head match play competition. It's all for pride and country. Um, you know, there's no money. It's not a yep. purse of money like a normal PGA Tour event. Um, these guys are doing it all because, you know, they they love their country and they're playing for their country. So this is this is under the the country flag. So this is what it's all about. It really draws a in a unique energy um, out of golf. And um, 
you know, out of the crowds, you know, day in and day out of the, of the tournament week. So we're, we're really excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. Talk a little bit. Yeah, I have, I have no doubt. And what a great venue for it to, to be at and, and uh, a great area too, up in New Jersey. Um, let me ask you, Michael, obviously, you know, any event that a player is going to play in, there's always going to be a certain amount of pressure, but there's definitely, um, as there is with the Ryder Cup, uh, there's definitely going to be a lot of pressure here for the, for the guys uh, in, the, in the President's Cup as well. Talk a little bit about um, really what, what they're facing, uh, what they're up against. I mean, as you said, they're not playing for money. It's, it's pride and, and country and so forth. Um, it, it's a pressure cooker, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, this is one of those unique opportunities uh, where these guys get to play as part of it. You know, golf is, is traditionally, it's an individual sport. Um, so when you add, you know, when, when you're playing as an individual and you miss a putt, you're basically just letting yourself down. When you're playing as part of the United States team, not only are you representing your country, but you're playing for your teammates as well. And they're relying on you. So, you know, you're missing a putt there, you know, you're letting down the, the 12 players on your team. And on top of that, you know, possibly I say you're letting down the country, but you know, that, that might be a little dry, but, uh, but at the same yeah. time, you know, that's, that's the kind of pressure you're <laughs> facing out there. Um, you know, it's, it really adds a, a different element in those, those first, first tee shots every day for each match are they're nerve wracking. You know, you want to do well, not only individually, but you want to do well for your teammates in each match. And you also want to do well for your teammates as a whole. And, you know, at the end of the day, you want to do well for, you know, for your country, you know, you want to play well and and represent your country well. So it really adds a completely different element to it. Yeah. Let me just talk about the U S team for a second. Um, Obviously you've got a great, um, a great team captain and and sub captains that are going to be there, uh, as well, but do you look for anybody uh, in that lineup uh, for this year um, to sort of lead the charge? Is there anybody that comes to mind that you think that's going to sort of step up and be a, a leader out there for the rest of them to to be able to say, hey, and, and sort of the I guess the cheerleader and and all that as well? Is there anyone that that sort of comes to mind uh, that you think? Yeah, you know, I I think some of the younger guys um, that have have been a part of some of the recent. Uh, President's Cups and, and Ryder Cups recently, um, you know, like a Jordan Spieth, um, a Ricky Fowler, right. uh, Brooks Kepka. You know, I think those guys, um, they're competing to be on this team. I think they, they are really going to step up. They they know what it's like to be there recently, and they they bring a little bit different energy. Um, I think some of the old school guys do. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I would look for, you know, Phil Mickelson just gave a, a little bit of an interview, I think it was this week, uh, where he's talking about he's going to make right. a push now to, to, to make this President's Cup team and, and really be an integral part of it. Um, you know, he loves Liberty National. He's there a lot uh, when he's in town in New York. Mm. Uh, so I know he wants to be a part of it. I would look for him, honestly, to, to not only make the team and play well, uh, but be a com- complete leader out there on course during this event and really provide these guys with, uh, with the leadership they need on the U S side for sure. Let me ask you, um, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, you know, the, the captains have, um, two captains picks. Um, what do you think? And, and, and obviously again, you have to go from draw from your own experience. What's the most important or, or um, among the top, um, uh, priority, if you will, I guess the better way to put it, uh, is a captain looking for sometimes, I mean, obviously they want a strong player, but is, is there something else that they're looking for uh, when they're making those picks? Well, I think they're looking for, for the confidence, you know, at that time, um, you know, combined with, 
you know, a history of, of playing well under pressure situations. And that's exactly what this is uh, from start to finish uh, from the first tee shot on Thursday to the, the last, you know, last putt on this, you know, last singles match on Sunday. Um, this is nothing but a pressure situation. And I think, um, you know, guys that have been in that situation before and have really come through, I think are, are beneficial. Um, so, you know, looking at the standings as they are right now, um, you know, for those guys that aren't in the top 10, I would look for, you know, a guy like Matt Kuchar, who's, who's been in those situations. He's been a part of the Ryder Cup. He's been a part of the President's Cup. Brant Snedeker, same way. Um, Jason Duffner, um, you know, Phil's not in, inside right now, but if he was outside, I would look to him to, to possibly be a, a contender. And, you know, the other guy I would look for is, is Bill Haas. Um, you know, he was part of the last President's Cup team. He, he was the winning match on, on Sunday um, in South Korea for the, for the last President's Cup team for the United States team. So, um, you know, when he's won a FedEx Cup, he, he's a, he, can, he does well under pressure. I would look for him to be, be a part of this team as well. Wow. Um, it's definitely going to be exciting, um, you know, regardless of the outcome. Uh, obviously, I know that we uh, are going to be rooting for Team USA, but um, – it's going to be exciting regardless, and, and what a great venue at Liberty National, uh, a beautiful course, and as you said, with the uh, New York skyline as a backdrop, um, it doesn't get much better than that. Um, I wanted to save this question for last. We've got a few more minutes here that we can spend, um, and you kind of touched a little bit about it in the beginning, but I wanted to maybe just to sort of wrap this up. Um, You've obviously had a, a great opportunity. You've played uh, on a number of uh, different mini tours and a lot of different events, met some great people in that. I want you to just talk about a little bit about what you've learned along the way uh, in pro golf and, and how has it impacted your life today? Um, and obviously it's given you an opportunity to work uh, with the premier tour in, in the world, uh, obviously the PGA tour, uh, but also in business. So what are some things that you've taken away uh, from your experience as a professional golfer that you now um, put forth uh, in your, in your life as it, as it is? And, and what do you see in the future as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, great question. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I didn't have the, the success I wanted, um, you know, coming out of the mini tours and, and in my professional golf career, but I wouldn't trade those years for, for anything. I learned so much uh, about myself along the way um, that I, it's just so invaluable now. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I learned about myself is the resiliency I have inside. Um, you know, I look at um, the role I have now and being in the sales world um, and anyone who's in the sales world in, in any format, doesn't matter if it's sports or, or insurance or, uh, or Wall Street or whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, you're, most of the time you're getting told no. Um, and I, I kind of relate that. You only get told yes a few times. And I kind of relate that to, to professional golf. And, you know, I didn't win very often. Um, I didn't have a ton of, you know, as much success as I wanted to. I got told no a lot on, right. on the mini tours. I, I missed a lot of cuts. I didn't qualify for the events I wanted to. Sometimes, you know, I had really terrible rounds of golf sometimes in events and in big events. Um, but I was able to bounce back and I was able to, to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what didn't I do well? What do I need to change for the, for the next one? Um, and you know what? I apply that to my business world now. I, I know when, when I get a no here in, in the sales world, I know I'm just that much closer to a yes. I know I'm that much closer right. to, to making a sale and, and bringing someone on board that, that is really going to enjoy this event and really get a, 
get the full amount out of this event um, and really benefit their their company and uh, and grow their business relationships. That's that's my goal. Um, so you know that's I think that's the biggest thing I've learned about myself, um, and it's the biggest thing I apply to my everyday day business world is is a real resiliency and you know not taking no for an answer and you know not not quitting um not not folding over when when someone tells me no or says hey we can't do it this year or the budget doesn't quite you know work this year call us next year or whatever right like, okay you know just pick yourself up and move on to the next one we you know you can't uh you can't sit and and wallow in in uh you know in the sorrows but uh you just gotta pick yourself up by your bootstraps and and move on to the next one so uh, i think that's the probably the biggest thing i've learned about myself and uh, applied to, to the business world today yeah and and that's uh what a great way to end the segment and you're exactly right michael um you know i think golf teaches us so many things I think a lot of people that maybe have not had the benefit of playing, and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, as you have playing on a professional level, but uh, playing this game at all, I don't really think that they appreciate just how much golf really parallels life um, in so many ways. And I think this is why you're seeing more, particularly in the women's market, um, you know, you're seeing so many women entrepreneurs that uh, understand the value and the benefits that, that golf brings, not just to their everyday life, but just to their business life as well. I mean, so many uh, doors get open, so many opportunities. And I think this is why, um, you know, golf, despite some uh, setbacks here and there in, in the last decade or so with the recession, I think still continues to grow in many other areas. Um, and I think this is why uh, people just see so many parallels to their everyday life and, and the challenges and the hurdles um, that they face on the golf course are very similar to many of the hurdles and challenges that we face uh, each and every day in our own lives. So um, uh, great Absolutely. conversation, Michael. I enjoyed uh, having you as a guest tonight. Um, I, I always like to learn a little bit along the way as, as well, and I certainly de- definitely did that. And I know that the uh, the listeners did, and, and I'm going to definitely uh, make a point of having you come back again, and, and we'll see if we can bring a few others with you as well and, and uh, expand the conversation. But um, uh, Michael, any, any final thoughts or, or comments that you want to make? Uh, anything coming up that you want to get out there, plug the last minute, uh, uh, or any uh, contact information that you want to give out there for anyone that might be tuning in that uh, would like to get more information, let's say, on the President's Cup? Where can they go to do that? Yeah, absolutely. No, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation as well and being part of the show. Ted, thank you very much. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, but, yeah, come out to the President's Cup. It's going to be fantastic. It uh, doesn't matter if you're in the New York area, New Jersey area, or somewhere else around the world. Come out and see it. It's going to be spectacular. Uh, you're not going to want to miss this one. It's With the Statue of Liberty and Manhattan Skyline and Liberty National, It's the course is phenomenal. It's going to show so well, and we're really excited. So, um, you know, if, you, if you're looking for more information, go on to uh, www.presidentscup.com. Uh, we have uh, some hospitality packages and tickets still available. Um, you know, it's, okay. it's a limited ticket this year. Um, you know, we don't, we don't quite have the space mm-hmm. at, at Liberty national that, you know, like a Hazel team did for, for the Ryder cup. So, uh, we, we can't accommodate right. 50,000 people a day. We have, we have a cap of 25,000 <laughs> people. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about coming out to this event, don't hesitate, get your tickets now. Um, you know, go onto the hospitality section, pick out some hospitality, give us a call. Um, you know, we're here, we're ready. We're, uh, we'd love to have you out. We're, we're ready for September, and it's uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. President Scott, here we come. Yeah, 
Yeah, it sounds great. Um, well, uh, Michael, thank you very much uh, for joining me here tonight on Golf Talk Live. Uh, again, I've enjoyed the uh, uh, the conversation and, and uh, discussing many aspects of, of tour life and and also uh, you know some of the great uh, players that are out there and, and just some of the, the the journeys that they've had to face and some of the ups and downs and challenges that they've had to face along the way and uh, just been some interesting dialogue. So, Michael, I appreciate you coming on and, and as I said, uh, we'll uh, we'll get together and and uh, cook up another. Uh, uh, another episode to uh, to bring to the listeners, and uh, we'll maybe see about bringing uh, some others on uh, to join us as well. But uh, Michael, uh, much uh, continued success uh, at, at PGA Tour headquarters. I know that you're doing a great job there, and I know you're excited about this fall's event. and uh, And uh, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be an armchair. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make it to the event personally, but uh, I'm going to definitely be uh, be rooting the the, the uh, U.S. team on for sure. So. Uh, again, thank you, Michael, and, and uh, good uh, luck with the event. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, it was a pleasure being with you today, and uh, enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great evening, Michael. Thanks, you too. All right. That was my very special guest, uh, sales manager for the PGA Tour, and, the uh, of course, the 2017 President's Cup, Michael Vaughn. Uh, if you want to get more information, as Michael indicated, uh, go to presidentscup.com and uh, you can visit the hospitality section there and there'll be lots of uh, information. There'll be all kinds of links on there that'll tell you uh, the whens and the wheres and the hows if you're interested. Uh, and as Michael said, that the uh, limited uh, availability, uh, they're, they're going to be scaling it back uh, as, as in previous years just because of the venue's uh, limitations, but uh, there's still some spots left. Um, and if you want to reach out, uh, I'm sure there's a, an opportunity to do so uh, through that website. So uh, definitely don't want to miss that. Um, as I said uh, earlier in the broadcast from the very beginning, I will not be having a show uh, next week, uh, July 13th. Uh, I will be out of the area and, uh, in fact, mid, mid-flight um, during the broadcast, uh, regularly scheduled time from 6 to 8. So unfortunately, we won't be able to do a show next week, but I will be back. Uh, with a coach's corner and another great uh, guest on July 20th and then uh, the week following on the 27th again uh, as we close out July. So on behalf of uh, all of the uh, listeners around the world or on uh, this broadcast, I want to take this opportunity rather to thank all of the listeners around the world for faithfully tuning in uh, each week to Golf Talk Live. And I certainly have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of highly talented coaches, uh, teacher professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs stop by. And it's really, as I've said so many times, it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. Uh, special thanks to some of the sponsors and supporters of the show, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Uh, go to southcoastgolfguide.com. And on there, you can find all about the guide there. And if you're interested in getting a copy, if you're not currently down in the southeastern part of the United States and you'd maybe like to get a copy, maybe you're planning a, a, a short vacation down here and you want to get some golf in, uh, you want to get a copy of that uh, South Coast Golf Guide um, and uh, be able to check out some of the great golfing venues here in the, the southeastern part of the United States, uh, literally from Texas right over here to uh, northwestern part of Florida and uh, many of the states in between, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, and Louisiana, of course. And, uh, of course, here in uh, northwest uh, part of Florida, Pensacola, right through here to Panama City Beach. Uh, so lots of great tracks there. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com. Uh, you can request a copy be sent out to you. Jonathan Laird, of course, the uh, owner and, and uh, editor of the guide, will be more than happy to, uh, and publisher, uh, more than happy to uh, send you out a copy. Uh, or if you're planning on coming down here or already down here, if you visit uh, uh, great uh, locations like Edwin Watts and many of the golf courses in this area, 
um, uh, carry the publication so you can just check uh, with them and if not as I said you can find out lots of great information by going to southcoastgolfguide.com um, also want to thank Meredith Kirk a great LPGA teacher professional out in the Myrtle Beach, Myrtle Beach South Carolina area uh, you can go to Myrtle, uh, meredithkirk.com to learn more about her uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland uh, Nikki of course is a great uh, golf professional uh, from uh, originally from Australia and uh, thank you, uh, Nikki, and his uh, lovely wife, Tiffany, for helping spread the word about the program. I appreciate all of your support over the years. And, of course, Ms. Mr. Bernie Pinder uh, from Ontic Golf, a great uh, customized line of putters. Uh, go to ontikgolf.com and check out their website uh, if you're interested and in maybe you're in, uh, in the market for a new putter. That's a great uh, product to have. Um, Mr. Sean Kelly, owner of linkedgolfers.com, one of the largest uh, LinkedIn uh, golfing networks uh, on linked, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, he's also got a great website, linkedgolfers.com. Uh, many of the great uh, uh, golfing information that you can find both within the uh, LinkedIn community, you can also find at linkedgolfers.com. And last but not least, uh, my good friend from over in Ireland, Mr. Peter Doyle, a uh, great teach professional as well as a club fitter, uh, Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Uh, be sure to check him out as well. Thank you, uh, guys, for all of your continued support. And all of the many guests that have been on the show over the last several years, thanks for, uh, for keep coming back, and, and especially on the Coach's Corner panel. I, I know we've uh, not had it for the last couple of weeks, uh, and again, going to be skipping next week, but uh, a lot of people on vacation and so forth, so we're just taking a little bit of a break. But uh, we'll be back on the 20th of July. Uh, for the next show and as I said Coach's Corner will be back then and with some great guests as well so on that note I want to take this opportunity one last time to thank my very special guest Michael Vaughn um, from the PGA Tour uh, thanks Michael for coming on the show and uh, thank you everybody have a great weekend and I will see you uh, in two weeks time here on Golf Talk Live God bless everybody and have a great weekend <laughs>